Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. This is episode 83 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we are back with Jennifer Kisner for a part two of her wonderful series on getting started with a fees program and discussing their fees simulation program that they do. So hope you guys enjoy this episode. Let's move on to competencies. All right. We Just like we have policies and procedures for everything, we have our competencies. And and this goes to what we were talking about earlier. Just because you can do something, just because ASHA says it's within your scope of practice, doesn't mean that you should do it until you have achieved that advanced skill. And I've been doing fees for about 10 years now. And, you know, it is definitely a skill. And I I will tell you a story. When I was in the acute care, the way that we were taught was we would do, we would go underhand, if that makes sense, where you have like elbow close to your body and and everyone said for body mechanics, this is just a better way if you're going to be in someone's nose for that long of a time. And the equipment that we had, you could, you could either scope, you know, overhand or underhand. But we all learned one way, and that was our motor memory. That's what we learned how to do, and we did it really well. And then I moved into the outpatient clinic, and all the the ENTs scope overhand. And it just threw me. It was just the simple thing of going from underhand to overhand and flipping the scope and how you're going to move the toggle. Teresa, it took me six months. Did they, did they make you switch or did you just, you know what? I could have kept switching it back and forth, but because everyone else, the other speech pathologist and all of the ENTs all did it that way. I thought, okay, let me just learn this. So even just that, you know, I thought that I, you know, I had it down. I had been doing it for a while. I changed, you know, my hand position and it threw me off. Yeah. It's so funny. I was using, like, I've used the same scope for like six, seven years now. And then I switched to a different one and I was like, I don't even know what to do with this. Like I, I cannot, like, I can't use this. (laughs) I was practicing on one of my professor friends and she's like, I thought you'd be better at this. And I'm like, I don't know how to use this scope. Like, I, <laughs> but I had no idea that like just switching a little, you know, it's like I, I could scope with my scope with my eyes closed, standing upside down on my head, but switching to this other one, it was like, it was so hard for me. So yeah. Oh my gosh. I feel your pain. <laughs> But I just like to say that because it is it is an advanced skill. And again, you know, having having mentors, having physician advocates that will take the time to really show you how they scope and what techniques they use. And at our, our course, we have our, our attendings and our fellows, you know, whoever whoever from ENT or head and neck can come to our course, we have them come for the scoping session. And because I want to hear and I want the participants to hear all the different ways that the physicians, everyone has their own little, you know, way of explaining explaining. And, you know, I don't just want to say you have to do it this way. This is the only way because there are different ways, like we were just saying, different ways to hold the scope. So um, learning how to feel comfortable with, you know, putting a scope into someone's nose. 
So there are, you know, really great diagnosticians. There are great swallowing therapists who can, you know, do great evaluations, but it's that putting a scope in someone's nose that they just feel really uncomfortable with. So I think that's another reason why, you know, you just want to practice, practice, practice. We have our new clinicians come in and they have to observe so many fees. This is after they've already taken you know, a two-day course or a couple of two-day courses and have done their own kind of literature searches and background. And then we had lunch sessions where we, it kind of got comical because we would just send a page out to everyone of who wants their nose scope today? And we would get like, PTs, OTs, we would get nurses, uh, we'd get charge nurses and people on the front desk, like anyone who wanted to come, they were so engaged and, you know, willing to help us just pass the scope. And of course, you know, we'd have one person and, you know, sitting in the chair and there'd be a line of like five speech pathologists just going to try to, you know, to practice that skill. We, we probably did that for a good, you know, eight months where, you know, as many lunchtimes as we could, we just wanted to feel comfortable with passing the scope because that's not really what a fuse is about, right? A fuse is about the actual test, but there are definitely some people who, are, who have asked me and were nervous about just getting over that part of it. So I think, you know, more, the more bombardment that you can do, that you can feel confident, then we can move on to actually the fun stuff. Right, right. And that's what I tell everybody too. I think it's it's completely two separate parts. Like it's it's getting comfortable navigating the scope is part one and then doing that while you're looking at it and interpreting what you're seeing. And I think so many people just try to rush to step two without even getting comfortable with it. And it's it just makes me so sad to see people do that. And they're like, I, I don't even know what I'm doing. You know, it's like stop, slow down. Like you need to just go back to learning how to hold the scope again. I don't know if you had read um, Dr. Sherry Berkowitz wrote up an article, I believe it was in JSLHR a few years ago, about using like the pool noodle to practice scoping on. So she has her, yeah, she has her grad students, like she cuts, yeah, oh my God, I, I just adore her. I love her so much. She cut open a pool noodle and, and glued like little beads and stickers inside and like put the pool noodle back together. And the students just, and they practice scoping like around the beads, looking at the sticker. I mean, and it's brilliant just to get people used to holding on to the dang scope. Like <laughs> yep. we we have head models too yeah. that yeah. practice on. You and guys have that luxury. A lot of people yeah. don't. So <laughs> I mean, but even just like you said, if you have a scope, you can make anything, right? But yeah, just yeah. learning how to like what happens when I toggle my finger up? Oh, the yeah. scope goes down or what and that whole thing, once you get comfortable with it, and then also comfortable with, and I found this over time, is you know, talking to the patient and really explaining what you're going to do before you pull this very long, what looks to them scope out and they think, where's that going? You right, know? right, right. I love so many of them just go, eh, they just yes. open your mouth. I'm like, no, I just told you it's going in your nose. Like, <laughs> <laughs> It totally happens. But, you know, after getting that practice, and again, that's where, you know, being proficient as an endoscopist not as a fees first, but just doing endoscopy is where we need our, you know, physician champions to help us out and our other colleagues, uh, speech pathologists who are trained in doing fees. We do for our competencies, we have technical competence, we have a written exam. Oh, cool. 
we do like critical thinking. We have case studies and say, you know, you know what what would you do with this patient? And, you know, it walks through, you know, what strategies would you use? And if you see this, what do you do? Because, you know, swallowing, there's a lot of gray area in, you know, if a strategy doesn't work, what recommendation, you know, we want, how comfortable are you with this patient aspirating and to, you know, how much aspiration is okay. And I will also, you know, call myself out that I was in the ICUs at Stanford for many, 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 many years. And so I was probably more on the cautious side because of some of my patients and, and other things that were going on, like heart-lung transplants and things like that. And then I go into the head and neck world where these patients are, you know, quote unquote, otherwise healthy, except for this tumor that they have, right? So, you know, those folks who are walking around and aspirating a little bit, they're going to be just fine. But it did take me a while to kind of change that mindset to, um, and, and really get into the literature and how much aspiration is okay, what really causes a pneumonia and really delving into all of that really helps us with that critical thinking part in, in doing the studies. And I think that's just so much the, the critical part to include the patient in too. You know, it's, it's like we're just so used to spitting out these recommendations without having any clue if that's even what the patient's wishes are, you know? So it's like, I've gotten to the point that I just basically talk out loud and let my brain vomit like in front of the patient so that they, I, you know, because I'm like, oh, this could happen, but this could happen, but it depends what you want. And they're like, well, I don't want that to happen. It's like, okay, well now we're getting somewhere. Well, this could happen. Well, that could happen. Well, that's what I want to do. Well, all right, now we've got a plan, you know? So I think it's just so important to throw out all these possibilities with including our patients instead of just saying, this is what you have. And I think this is what you should do. So now, we're not doing anything to the patients. This right. is a collaborative thing, right? And if I have a patient who, you know, is, I have patients who have had, you know, uh, treatment related changes from radiation to head and neck years ago, and their swallow is not pretty. We'll just, we'll, we'll say, and they aspirate every time they eat but they haven't gotten a pneumonia. They really work on keeping their, you know, their lung function, their lung capacity well. They get up, they do a lot of moving, and they understand that there might be a time when they, and they're maintaining their weight. So, you know, their, their swallow, it takes them, you know, maybe an hour and a half to eat that bagel in the morning, but that gives them quality of life because they want that bagel. And and if they're maintaining their weight and they're not getting a lung infection, we're not going to put a tube in, but there definitely would be clinicians if they saw what their fees exam looked like would be horrified, right? So you got to yep. take it into consideration. You show the patient if they're cognitively intact and have that conversation. If there's a cognition issue, who are the you know caregivers? Who are the responsible parties? And and we have that conversation with them. So I, I I'm definitely on your on your bandwagon of we are just we are someone who's going to come in and impart information that they didn't know. They didn't know that this was happening. They didn't know that their swallow looked like this. And we're like there. We definitely say you could do option A. You can do option B. There is not. I'm the person who's going to hold all the cards and say you must do this. So I, I think that's an important. Um, Sorry, I told you there was going to be some soapboxes. <laughs> That's okay. I love it. <laughs> so we do, we do our um, anatomical, physiological assessment. We watch them kind of go through doing a fees, looking at the anatomy and the structure. And I love having our ENTs come in. And because for years and years, we're like 
well, how do we describe what we see? You know, if there's something, you know, anatomically off or if there's some asymmetry or, you know, something that we think shouldn't be there. And our ENTs were just so great in saying, these are the terms that we use. So if you, and these are not diagnostic, they're descriptive. So we've gotten really comfortable. I mean, I used to not like even the word mass. I thought the word mass meant, oh, it's a malignant tumor, you know. But mass is just a descriptive term. Does not mean that it is anything else, but so a mass that's in, that's in the, the field that we're, we're looking at with these. So really just knowing, knowing your anatomy, knowing variations of normal, and also knowing when something is not normal. And then knowing who can I refer them to and be very specific when you're referring. If I walk in and I'm going, that left vocal fold is not moving. Okay, we have a hypomobile vocal fold or an amobile vocal fold. I'm describing. I didn't say paralyzed or anything like that. I'm going to you know, send a message to my ENT and say, Mr. X has a hypomobile vocal fold. Can you please assess him? I am concerned for, and then depending on your comfort level with that, you could say, I am concerned for a vocal fold paralysis due to maybe there was something that happened in the history or surgical, something like that. I think when we make referrals, we need to direct them into what we're referring them for, if that makes sense. I don't want to just say, you need to go to ENT, ENT, figure it out, or you go to GI, or you go to neuro. I want them to know what my clinical reasoning is and why I'm sending them to you. And it sounds so simple, but I think so many people, and maybe it's because we're busy, I don't know, but so many people just have a little box in their evaluation that says referrals, and it could just be almost a checkbox of these are all the people I want to refer, you know, nutrition and this one. But I think we need to add a little bit to that and say why I'm referring to you. Because if we're all consultants trying to help the patient and I see something there, I need to let the other person know why I'm referring. Absolutely. I think it does, does. I don't know if it happens to you. It definitely bothers me when I get, can you just see this patient? He has dysphagia. And, and, yeah. that, and that's, yes. that's my line. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yes. Can you give me something? So, right. Well, wh- how? What's going on? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I feel like if I'm giving that information to other people, I'm trying to, you know, possibly train them to have the same respect for me when they're referring a patient back to me of, can you see this patient for swallowing because of this? Yeah. So, and then we, we have the direct observation by our ENTs and we do our skill and knowledge during our endoscopic exam. And when we first, when someone completes all of those competencies, like you and I were saying before, just because you complete the competency doesn't mean, okay, now I am fully, I, I'm, I'm ready for anything. You, yeah. still, you still need some mentorship. So may either you kind of pair up with other people in your facility or even someone who's not in your facility who you can call and say, hey, I had this challenging case, what would you do? You always want to have your lifelines, you know, while you're doing it because there are some, you know, cases now where some, you know, my colleagues and I, you know, will get together 
because in our head and neck group, a patient can have multimodality treatments, you know, surgery, radiation, chemo radiation, and then have a recurrence and multiple recurrence and all of these, you know, such a, a complicated history that when we look at their swallow, it is challenging to think what else can we do. So having those lifelines, even if you think, you know, I've gone through all the competencies, my my everyone, my supervisor signed me off. Don't just, you know, use be ethical in in when you're you know seeing the patients if it's something that you need help with ask. Yes, absolutely. Wow, I'm I'm way too much on that soapbox. That's okay. You're fine, Jennifer. This this is just, you know, and, and that's why I love doing this because it's like people with, like you said, years of experience that have ridden the waves and, you know, fought the good fights and, you know, just it's not a soapbox. It's just you've seen you've you've seen it all. You've seen what can happen if things don't go right. You've seen what can happen if things do go right. So thank you for sharing your expertise. It's not a soapbox. So So we also um, were talking about just kind of our protocol of like when to scope and when not to scope. Yep. So again, you know, if you're in acute care and you're, and the, the reason the patient's in acute care is because they're not medically stable. So when you go in to see the ICU patient in the morning and you're going, oh, okay, you know, you're looking okay this morning, two hours later, when you get everything together and you're ready to come back to do the fees, the patient may not be appropriate at that time. So it's that constant reassessment, more so in those acute, you know, in the ICU floors, when the patient gets moved down to, you know, the regular non-monitored floors, we're probably a little bit safer. But again, that's not to say we shouldn't be going into the ICUs because we absolutely should. There are patients who have feeding tubes and are being kept NPO who do not need to. And I don't know if we've mentioned this yet, but, you know, we just don't want disuse atrophy. You know, how long if we're not feeding someone and we're not feeding someone that this was an otherwise healthy person, but now we've caused them to have weakness because they haven't eaten in two weeks, right? So so that that when to scope and when not to scope. A big thing for our institutionalized patients is really, you know, when you have the electronic medical records, looking at the lab values, looking at their platelet counts, their INRs, are they, is their heart rate stable, their blood pressure stable, do they have history of laryngospasms, how much suctioning do they need? Of course, things like level of alertness and willing to participate. You know, unfortunately, some of our patients could be on medications that make them sleepy. And we might have to say they're so sleepy, even if I say they're okay, because, you know, in this 20 minutes, they're alert, you know, are they going to be able to sustain themselves nutritionally by oral means alone when their level of alertness is waxing and waning throughout the day? So sometimes we'll ask the, the, the nurses and the physicians, you know, can, can we change some medications? Can we do something to keep them more alert? Can we get them out of bed into the chair? Those, those type of things. So clearly, you know, if the patient is intubated or they're anticipating intubation, you know, we are not going to go in and do our evaluation. The patient is altered, has nosebleeds or epitaxis, the hemodynamically fragile patients, the facial trauma and the uh, deviated septum. You know, if someone has facial trauma and includes their nose, that's going to be a really challenging patient to do a fees on. We'll probably wind up bringing them down to radiology when we can. And the deviated septum or there's some other other things that I've 
experienced in my career where you talk about this test and you, you talk about putting a scope through their nose and they've had trauma or you've asked them for things and they haven't told you until the, you tried to place the scope in their nose. And then they go, oh yeah, no, that's totally blocked on that side. You can't do that. Yeah. So I think kind of the when to scope is asking the right questions to the patients so that you're setting yourself up for success before you even go into the room. Absolutely. I don't know, Teresa, a question for you, because yeah. you're going into facilities. Do you have any checklist of things that you ask the speech pathologist who are referring to make sure that the patient is like appropriate for you that day? So the short answer is no. The long answer is I've worked with most of these girls for so long that they they will like when they call or email me or text me and say, I have a patient, but I just want to let you know this, this and this. What do you think? And then I'll, you know, then I'll give my feedback of, ooh, you know, maybe let's hold off a week or no, that's no no problem or, you know, make sure we get clearance from the doctor first. So I, I'm fortunate that the girls I work with, and I do work with all girls, I'm not discriminating. I don't have any guys that I work with right now, <laughs> but but they, you know, they're they're wonderful and they look out for these things first kind of before they call me. So, but I've obviously done a lot of education in that realm as well. So, and they've, you know, they kind of know that I'm up for anything. So I always say, you know, if you are even considering it, let's try. And if we can't make it work, we can't make it work. But I would much rather try and fail than write the patient off to begin with. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I have this story that is just so funny. And it's it's one that I tell whenever I'm talking about this topic, because it surprised me. And I, I was an outpatient with this gentleman. And again, I think he had tongue cancer. And we were talking about it was base of tongue tonsil. And I was talking about the test. And I said, any facial trauma? Any, any, no, no, everything's okay. And so I went to put the scope in his nose, and there's no septum. And it kind of looked like a cave and those like stalactites, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I just said, sir, can, what what's happened to your nose? And he yeah. goes, oh, yes, well, I, I did snort cocaine. In oh, yeah. Past. So I took that as something that, okay, this is something that I probably should ask my patients. Yeah. Is there anything, you know, more than just nasal trauma or deviated septum? Is there anything in there? And some of those patients, I've had a few are just hypersensitive in their nasal cavity, but it was one of those where I put the scope in and I'm going, it took me a moment to orient myself to what I was looking at. I, I think that's the creepiest thing. Like I remember even scoping like my first laryngectomy, like, you know, it's like you go in and you're like, where am I? What is going on here? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, back up. This is what I should be seeing. This is what I'm definitely not seeing. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd like to take a quick second to thank our wonderful sponsors, EndoHD. They've created a true high definition endoscopy system that was designed by speech language pathologists specifically for fees with a system storage that stores 100,000 10 minute studies. That's a, that's a ton. A highly maneuverable cart, integrated stereo audio, and remote access for service, which is an absolute godsend when you're in a bind. They combine cutting-edge technology with clinician-inspired devices and phenomenal customer service to make the best imaging devices in the country. So please go to www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fee systems requirements, pricing, or request a live product demonstration. 
So I think we covered this a little bit before, but just it is so important and it's important for your, you know, your neck health, your shoulders, your back, just setting up and positioning when a physician goes in to do surveillance and look inside their throat or just go in and and quickly look at they're in and out in a couple of minutes, right? We, we are hanging, we're having lunch in there. We're And so just knowing your, where should you be standing? Where is the screen? How is your head position and your arm position? Those are things that I don't think anyone taught us until we started doing. And then unfortunately, one of my girlfriends got, she got a neck injury and she just said, I think it's from doing the fees. I think yeah. I've been holding yeah. it, you know, and, and having to have our, I'm forgetting the, the name of the department, but having them come in and show us our, you know, how you should be standing and at what level the screen should be for you. And it, it just changed all of our practices because, you know, we were focusing on everything else in the room except except for us. And, yeah. you know, yeah. we want to be, we need to be able to, to do that. And I, I remember at the very beginning, I was, I was going and doing a fees with my, one of my other colleagues and about oh, eight minutes into the fees, she just looked at me and said, so Jennifer, I'm going to need you to hold the scope now. And so we needed to do a handoff because yeah. she was just in a precarious position where her wrist was really starting to get numb. Yeah. So People don't talk about that. <laughs> no, I, I was training a girl a few months ago and she was like, you make it look so easy. You're so relaxed. And I'm like, I've been doing this for so I do this all day, every day. Like I know how my body feels best. Like I know if I see a setup in a room, I know how to move things around so that it works for me so that I can get an optimal position. Because if I get in there and this is going to be a 20 minute long fees, it's going to be a living hell. Like, so, so I try to, like I said, I try to set myself up for success. And she actually, she was like, well, I think this would be comfortable. And she like got down in this weird position. And I was like, okay, now stay in that position for 20 minutes. And she was like, oh God, I could never do that. And I said, so let's stop and think about this again. Like you have to be comfortable and know that, you know, sure, you only want the study to be a few minutes, but some of these are going to go on forever and you have to be able to hold that. And I really don't want you to, you know, be numb tomorrow. So, <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, how many fees in a day do you do? Right. 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 I mean, I can have, you know, five to, to seven or eight fees in, in my outpatient clinic in a day. And there, there were times at the beginning where I was like, okay, I need to, you know, look at my posture and, and positioning and make sure that, you know, uh, we had three different rooms that had slight, that have slightly different setups. And so in each room I had to go, okay, I'm in this room. I need to make sure I stand here and do that. So, yeah. you know, one of those little tips that no one really, really talks to you about. Right. I also think just people should feel comfortable with the nose, you know, get comfortable with the nose and understand the nose and what it does. <laughs> um, there, there have been a few uh, speech pathologists who just the fear of, you know, going into the nose. And I, I often say, okay, so I have a camera and a light source and my nursing colleagues have nothing. And when they're putting a feeding tube in someone's nose, they're told to, you know, stay low and go, right. That's what they're taught. And then at some point when you feel resistance, you say swallow. And that's kind of how they think that they're getting the, the, uh, their feeding tube into someone's esophagus into their stomach. And thank goodness they do chest x-rays before they initiate any feedings to make sure that the tube, you know, went down the right way. Yeah, yeah. But 
I, I just like to calm people down to say, we have a light source, we have a camera, yeah. we are guiding the scope in. Um, and, and I think people, it's just that, like giving them that example of, oh yeah, yeah, once I get this, this, you know, it's okay. And I think I, I talked about it a little bit too, you know, I do think it's a responsibility and this is where, you know, doing it for a long time. Of if you do see something, it is our responsibility to say something. If you go in and there's someone who's like Parkinson's or a stroke, but you go in and you see a mass, you know, some uneven tissue on the base of the tongue, you know, we need to let the proper people know. Because had you not done that test, we may not know, right? For yep. who- knows how long, right? And yeah. symptoms maybe we're starting. So I do feel like getting to know what normal is and feeling really comfortable about the descriptors of what we would let people, you know, what do we want my ENTs to know? What right. do I feel like, you know, this is what I'm seeing. I'm concerned about this. And um, one of our ENTs does a talk on, it's really funny. It's kind of like the traffic light. It's like, what things are, I can see this patient in like two months. What are like, mm, maybe this guy needs to get seen, you know, within a week or two. And what are those red light things like? I need you to come to my clinic right now. Yeah. So that was really eye-opening for us too, just to kind of know what we're seeing and know being comfortable with, is this something that is emergent or is this something that can wait? And, and that takes time and yeah. practice seeing so, so many of them. Yeah. I had a, I had a doctor actually that I saw, I saw something that was an ugly, horrible mass and I just knew right away it was not good. And it was almost impeding in the airway at that point. And so like I wrote in the recommendations, like ENT consult stat, and he called me and scolded me for writing that because he said that he didn't have time to get the patient out to an ENT for a few weeks and, you know, couldn't believe that I'd make those recommendations. And I said, that's fine. It's your responsibility now. And luckily, the patient's family got the patient out the next day and they took the patient into surgery because it was something very serious. But yeah, I could have just and, punched and that ENT think- in the face. But yeah. <laughs> 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 or doctor, I mean, <laughs> Sometimes we feel that way. Um, In my most professional terms, yes. In those professional terms, yeah. (laughs) I think that the way we also, when we're seeing something, I let the patient know as well, right? You're saying the patient and the family knew. And I also let them know I am not diagnosing anything. But if I do see something, it could be absolutely nothing. And, and the surgeon or the ENT might look at it and say, nope, that is perfectly normal or we expect that for what's going on. And so I preface what I'm saying by letting them know that. And I have learned, because I had an experience years ago with a student when we put the scope in and there was a mass and she was like, oh, she just made this huge... I, I had a student do know, that yesterday too. And I was like, we'll discuss it after the study. Please be quiet. Yeah. I While well, I'm gritting my teeth and giving her a death stare, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to give her that look of, let's yeah. hold it. Yeah. Shut your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But just, you know, and I think that goes along with, I had a patient yesterday, this was her post-treatment exam, and she just had some sores uh, that were not really healing very well from the radiation, some mucositis. And so I put the scope in and the husband was like, oh my God, that sore looks so much better. Look at that sore on that left side. So he knew that, you know, he knew the side, he knew what it was. And for him, 
he was almost like, oh, that makes me feel better because when I'm home, I don't know if it's healing. And now you right. just told me that it was healing. So for so many reasons, you know, that explaining to the patient the anatomy and, and don't feel like this is in any way, you know, a waste of your time or their time because educating them to what we see is, is a huge part of what we do. We are Absolutely. teachers, we are educators. And, and just that, you know, remembering that we see this all day long, but when you come in and it's the patient's first time, they've never seen this. They don't yep. know what, you know, they look at the image, they don't know what they're looking at, right? So really explaining to them, it's so important because this is their life. This is their journey. We are just someone who's helping them along the way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think, and like, I think along those lines, I think we have to be confident in what we know and what we don't know, you know, and, and in this particular case, the family was, you know, and I just said, there's something in here that I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it is. I, I honestly do not know. Um, and it's not within my wheelhouse to diagnose it. I said, so I'm going to recommend an ENT. And the son was like, well, do you think it's really important? And I said, I, I do. Like I, th I would, you know, I'd consider an ENT consult really quick. And yeah. he was like, well, if this was your mom, like how soon would you get an appointment? And I was like, I would call today and see how soon they could get her in. And he was like, thank you so much. And like, so then they called me after the whole thing and said, like, if you didn't tell us that, you know, if you would have just left it up to this doctor, who knows if it ever would have gotten done, you know, but I, I, I was happy with myself in that instance because I didn't tell them anything. I just said, I don't like how this looks. I want, I would get it checked out. If it was my mom, I would do it tomorrow. Yep. And I, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. <laughs> And I, and I, I think I use that, that line too. If you were a family member, this is, this is what I would do. And, yeah. but I also give them the, unfortunately I'm in, I'm in a, an oncology clinic. So when there's something that is of concern, even if it's, you know, not a recurrence, our team very quickly wants to see anything, right? Yeah. Even if it's like normal, they're just like, nope. They don't mind coming in and looking, but it is our responsibility, I think, to do that as well. And not only are you looking, you know, when you're when you um, get to your home base position, you know, looking at any differences in laterality, in movement, colors, you know, you can use shape sizes of you know anomalies or things like that. There's a dime size mass, you know, in the left, you know, piriform sinus or something. And then the secretions, the secretion management, are there, is there a lot in the piriform sinus? Is it kind of dripping into the airway? And all of those pieces, you know, before you even give the patient a bite, there's so much rich information that we can get from, you know, just how things are moving and how things look, right? So yeah. I also don't want people to rush through an exam and not take the time in those beginning stages. So yesterday this happened where my student and I, we had a patient with soft palate mass that was pretty big. It was about four centimeters. And surprisingly, he was having no pain, but it was quite a large mass. And she said, well, I'm concerned about nasal regurgitation. And I said, good. So when we bring the scope back up and we get to that nasal pharynx, we're going to look and make sure there's no food that has come up, right? We don't just go, okay, and take the scope out, right? right? So all of those pieces before and after you scope, you know, really add to the depth uh, and breadth of, of the fees exam, right? Yeah. And again, an ENT or someone who's just showing you how to scope is not going to give you those tools, right? They're yeah. not going to tell you that those pieces that really relate to function. Yep. 
And, and I'm sure because you've been doing this for so long, you probably, like you said, could do things with your eyes closed. But just as you're going down, you have, you know, what, what you make them do to, to see what you need to see. So you have them, for example, alternate sniffing through their nose and saying E to get full abduction and adduction of the vocal cords, right? And having them do shh and, you know, dunna dunna or Coca-Cola and looking at um, soft palate rise on the way down and pharyngeal constriction and lateral pharyngeal wall movement. Those are all things that you cannot pass up doing when you're doing this kind of examination. Right. Thank you for saying that, Jennifer. There was someone, I'm not sure who it was, but someone that was saying that all those tasks that we do on fees are completely pointless. So thank you for explaining that. Yes. No one saw my face. Yeah. I just gave you <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a lively uh, Facebook group topic one day. So yes. Oh, I think, you know, when you have a tool, you've got to use it. And, you know, whenever we go to the, we teach our class, there's always an ENT or someone who's there who will say, oh, and you can also try this, right? You know, how, how many times have you gone in and someone's, you know, epiglottis is just, it's just blocking your way. It's just straight up and you're going, how do I move around the scope? And, and yeah, I tried to have them jut their chin or do this or that. And it's, it's so interesting because the more you do it and the more people you talk to, you'll get, if this doesn't work, try this, this, or this right? So I want, you want people to kind of have that toolbox of, you know, I'm going to come in and have my standard work and I'm going to do the same thing every time with the patient and their anatomy is going to all be different. So I might have to use different tools for different patients to get to the same information that I need to, to have a comprehensive report. Yeah. I feel like sometimes, you know, it surprises me that you say that because when I'm saying it, it just seems like, well, it should, you know, we should be doing the same thing, right? It shouldn't be every time I walk in, it's this haphazard, you know, kind of in the moment. No, this is a procedure and it's treated like a procedure, right? Yep. Any, anyone who's doing any type of procedures, even if it's, you know, like speaking valve, putting a speaking valve on, do we just chuck the speaking valve on? No. We're doing a chart review. We're looking at their respiratory rate, their oxygen rate. We do digital occlusion. Like there's steps that we all go through before we get to, you know, that end part of it. So yeah, that surprises me. I'm glad I wasn't on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think it was someone spewing a lot of anti-fees venom. So yeah. I choose yeah. not to listen to that. <laughs> I have not listened to it in a very, very long time. So yeah. Uh, okay. Oh, and so these were just some descriptors. I'm just going to throw out a couple of words. And I think some people feel like, oh, this might be diagnostic, but it's not. So we can use things like exophytic. We can say there's an exophytic or outward growing mass, kind of pedunculated, right? Looks up. There are, there are so many people who say, how do I say that? Or they're looking at yeah, this what, image. What word was that you just said? Exo, what did you just say? There's exophytic, exophytic, like it's external. And there's endophytic, which is internal, right? Like okay. you might see something that pops up and it's exophytic and it's like a stalk or big bumps. And you can go in and go, oh yeah, that shouldn't be there. And then there's just like fullness in one area where you're, you see asymmetry and there could be maybe a mass that's endophytic or, or under the tissue. Right? Gotcha. Okay. So that's perfectly fine to, to use those words. We could say like lobular, 
these, you know, like, like grape likes, they're circular. I think I said the pedunculated. Talk about the colors, the shapes. If you don't feel comfortable, you could say things like it's smooth or irregular shaped. And I think especially for things like maybe, you know, cancers, if we hear more smooth versus, you know, uneven, bumpy, you know, that could cue the ENT of how quickly maybe they need to come in. So that that really is, you know, even if you're in a facility that has that does not have ENTs in it, whoever is being contracted to come in and see those patients, that's who you want to hook up with to say, please tell me the verbiage that you use, because I want to use, I want to use the descriptive verbiage that you use. So you know, when you're at the traffic light, do I need to speed through here? Or can I take my time? Or how long do I need to get there? Oh, excellent. That's an excellent point, Jennifer. Okay. And then things that I didn't know before I moved to outpatient really was just like, what does post-radiated tissue look like? Which looks very, very different than nice, pink, moist, healthy tissue. So if you haven't seen a lot of different kinds of exams and you're just starting out, not a bad idea to go online or even go to another course just to look at different images because there's such individuality to it. And so I think I don't want you to go in and be the, you know, the person who's scoping and doing the exam and having that, oh my goodness face. You should feel comfortable with reading the chart of, oh, he had radiation. I'm expecting to see X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And things like mucositis, you know, irritation of the tissue. Things that are, you know, reddish or swollen, erythema. Some people, you know, that's a fine word to use. It just means it's red, right? It's not, we're not diagnosing anything. <laughs> Edematous. Edematous are swollen, right? Grand, there's some things that like from, I don't know if you see this as much being in, being in skilled nursing, but there's a lot of like post-intubation traumas that we yes. see, granulation tissue. And, you know, some people go, oh my gosh, you know, is that a mess? So being able to really describe and see and put in context with this patient was intubated for two weeks or 10 days and, and his voice sounds like this. And when I scoped him, this is what I noticed, you know, in the, in the airway. So I know I'm harping on that a lot, but I do think that that is a really important piece of, of doing fees because you don't get that with fluoroscopy, right? Yeah. You don't get that real life picture of this, this is the image. This is what we're looking at. I need to feel real comfortable with, yeah. with what I'm seeing and how things are moving and how to describe. And things like symmetrical, we could say smooth edges, straight edges of the vocal cord bilaterally. You could say things like there's an hour-shaped hour shaped uh, to the vocal cords or the vocal cords are bowed. You could say they're freely mobile. doesn't look like there's any lesions on it. Good glottal approximation upon phonation. We can't, with a fees versus a stroboscopy, we could say that we think that the vocal cords are closing, but without having a strobe, you can't 110% say that we have, you know, that the glottis was completely closed on a deduction. And I talked about things like hypermobile, you could say spasms. Again, if you see a spasm, well, not diagnosing, we're just saying the vocal cords are spasming at rest, right? Or with, with motion. I think actually that is, I think that's what I had to talk to you about today. All right. That was wonderful, Jennifer. I just loved every bit of that. <laughs> And you guys, you said you have, you have a course coming up. Is that what you said? 
Yeah, so June 7th and 8th, we have our, I think we're on our fourth annual simulation-based fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of fees course at Stanford. And we are going to be opening up, um, or the registration I think just opened this week. And we do we do keep it to tw- about 20 participants because okay. we really want that hands-on information. But some of the information that I gave you today is part of more of the didactic portion of it, which, you know, everyone can, can hear. But Yes. And if my, maybe in the show notes, you can have my email. If there are people who are interested, they can connect them to my administration folks who help with the registration. Yeah, absolutely. So is that more of like, like a basic, basic course than Jennifer or? You know what? We, we absolutely have folks who've never scoped before and you will get your scoping passes, but we also talk about this, how to set up fees in your facility. Oh, great. And we also do the simulation portion. So I've actually talked to Susan Langmore about, about my course. And, you know, I said, it's different from your course. You know, these are the type of things that we're doing. And, you know, she was very supportive of, you know, I think all the courses that are around because, you know, everyone can't just go to you know, to, to this one course. And there's so many other great courses that you can yeah, get this information. There really truly is. Yeah. Our spin is to, you know, show you how to set up a fees. So there's actually some directors of rehab will, will come to our course. There are people who, you know, have scoped and want to get more hours and they'll, I'm sorry, more passes and they'll get more passes with us. And I really like that it's a small group because it's a two-day course. And then by the end of those two days, we've really, you know, formed relationships with these folks that, you know, Sandra and I don't just say, okay, you've gone to this course now, now go. We're very happy to have people, you know, contact us and ask us questions. And we've actually done some private courses at facilities. So we're, we're happy to do that as well. If we can get the time, you know, if that all works out, we've, we've done that before where we went to a facility and said, what do you exactly need to know? Like, where are you in this process? Some people might have their equipment and only use it sporadically. So we kind of have this menu of, you know, options of things that we can offer. That's excellent. Yeah. Thank you for letting me advertise that. I appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for everything that you shared today. That was, that was wonderful. I love, you know, I I think we hear of different companies all the time. And so thank you for bringing us another option as a, you know, kind of clinician driven solution. So yes, thank you. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks, Teresa. Yeah. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.